Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes. My, de- my guest today is Chris Wallace, Lead Senior Portfolio Manager. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Great. Well, today we're going to do something that's it's a little bit different, uh, a little departure from our normal podcast. Uh, this is going to be a little bit more long form. And, and what we're going to do today with Chris, and, and, and for those that are, are less familiar, Chris is, in addition to being a uh, Lead Senior Portfolio Manager, is also the firm's uh, CIO. Um, we're, going to, we're going to take an expansive look into the increasing volatility that we're experiencing of late. Um, and then beyond that, the mid to long-term factors impacting both uh, the market and the economy. Um, and so many, you know, many of these are, are ideas or concepts or, or events that are, are decades in the making and, and others that are just really beginning to, uh, to show potential. And, and, and uh, really for anyone who's you know, an investor or um, has followed Von Nelson over the years, uh, you know, we hope that this will be a, you know, a fairly informative, uh, informative podcast for you. So um, let's just let's get, get started here. We'll, we'll jump right off and, and we'll start with, with looking at what's been a trend for, for really for the last few years. Um, well, I guess it's been for some time, but, but I would say really in the last you know, three or so years um, has been a big significant impact on the markets. But you know, this is the, the excesses of the current cycle. And, and you know, we'll start with uh, my first question to you, Chris, will be about the Fed and the Fed's action. And, and, and how is the Fed's action? And, and with that, I, with respect to the liquidity that they've been providing, um, the allowing of, of, of leverage, that short vol trade that's been out there, um, how has that led in concurrently to the market behavior today? Yeah, I, I think it's critical to understand central bank's influence, not just in the stock market, but in the economy and risk assets and how it's actually changed the structure of the stock markets and other risk asset markets over the last 10 years. Um, You know, every cycle, every expansion we go through, you build up excesses. And and typically what we're used to prior to uh, the beginning of the current cycle in 09 was you'd build up economic excesses, whether it was in consumer spending or consumer leverage or maybe in technology and infrastructure or excesses in commodity supply relative to demand. And you'd go through a recession and you'd recess those excesses and you'd take the excess employment, the excess capital spending, the excess consumption, and it'd be redistributed across the economy. Um, And this cycle is very different because the excesses we built up really aren't in any economic unit. Uh, Certainly, we're going to have some froth on the edges around consumption. Uh, but when you really look at both the, the, the structure from an employment standpoint, uh, capital uh, CapEx standpoint, there's just not a lot of excesses out there. So what was the excess? And the excess was really the liquidity. And it's easy as a U.S. investor to focus solely on the influence of the Fed's actions uh, but it wasn't just the Fed. It was the Fed. It was the Bank of Japan. It, it was the ECB. And more importantly, it was China. The PBOC uh, printed on, relative to their GDP almost twice what the Bank of Japan, ECB, and the Federal Reserve printed. And so while you, you don't have a good look into that as a U.S. investor, you can't ignore its influence. And so it's, it's my position and my belief that what we're going to recess is we're going to recess this liquidity. Um, and we have to think about that because it's going to have a structural change um, in the way markets perform, perform and behave. And I really think that recession of liquidity began in 2018 with the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve going from QE to QT. Uh, and that will continue, as they state, through 
uh, you know, through the end of 2019, I'm skeptical that that will be able to, to be continued. But just as importantly, the ECB stopped and reduced its QE. The Bank of Japan did the same thing. And so when you think about that reversal in liquidity, that created a spike in volatility. Uh, so let me, let me, let me just yeah. jump in there. So, you know, if, if I'm, just to interject, so if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, you know, as you talk about the excesses that have come through and, and it's, you know, People's Bank of China, it's, it's, the, it's the Federal Reserve, it's the ECB, it's the Bank of Japan. Um, and as these excesses have flowed through, um, where while their intentions were, were more likely into areas like R&D or infrastructure, the reality is where those excess, that excess liquidity found itself was in risk asset prices and more specifically inside of U.S. risk assets. Is that fair? Yes, and not just U.S. risk asset assets. I think you, you could lay out and look at the world as a series of carry trades that were sponsored by this suppressed volatility and sponsored by this excess liquidity. And while it sat in banking systems as excess reserves, it ends up being lent out across the world and across the economy. So, you know, it, it's not just in U.S., equities, it's in debt, it's in luxury real estate, it's in, you know, a lot of the incentive for the Chinese to get their liquidity out of their country and get it into more secure areas. So it influenced what we've seen in, in major cities around the world as far as what we've seen happen to real estate prices. And it's why, quite frankly, we've already begun a recession and starting to recess those prices of that real estate. Um, but at the same time, you know, let's just think about what the, what the dynamic is when you suppress volatility. Because the first thing it does with the suppression of volatility, it reduces risk premiums, which boosts asset values. Um, it expands the, the valuations. You create those excess reserves. That money gets lent across uh, the marketplace. And when you suppress volatility, what happens is you, you create an environment that allows for not just leverage by investors, but you can create a, a, an environment where the trade really is just up and to the right. And when you get that environment and you have central banks suppressing any drawdowns, it leads to what we've seen is this programmatic trading and programmatic investing. So you have algos um, or you have trend following strategies and they can work right quite well. Right. And, and, and what you're just to be clear, what yeah. you're defining here is essentially the, the shortfall trade that has ultimately played out. Yeah, well, yes, and just trends in general. So I, I think it's instructive for investors to realize, I think we really, for the first time in a number of years, you need to separate the price action in the market from the economic fundamentals, that they've been disconnected by this liquidity and the fact that, you know, especially in equity markets where the dominant short-term trades are driven by computers and most of the strategies, it doesn't matter how complex they get, they're built ultimately around momentum and correlations. And you can't use historical correlations and really deploy and invest. So what I look at the market, when I look at the drawdowns and I look at it, I can understand and I don't that there is a disconnect between the economic fundamentals because we understand the businesses and these industries and we can look and go, well, these should not be connected. Why are they moving? Uh, and the reason why you can't rely on historical correlations is the context is always different going forward. The economy, uh, you know, global markets, uh, behavior evolves and morphs. And so while it may rhyme, it's not going to repeat. And so ultimately, I think it's going to prove quite futile. And it's also, when, when we talk about 
recessing liquidity. I really do think it means it's going to recess price and valuations. And so all we're going to be doing is we, we've got to get to the point where the the price of an underlying security is driven by its economic fundamentals, not the ability of the underlying owner who has a levered position, their ability to hold that. And let me give you some examples. Just yeah, kind and, of, and I think yeah. maybe it's worth just just going over that. I think that's a really important structural point about this conversation, right? So, you know, as, as we're as we're recessing liquidity, right? You're 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 witnessing the excess liquidity being pulled out of what we've talked about, things like real estate, things like the the, the equity markets. Correct. Um, and ultimately, what you end up seeing is a valuation compression for those securities, and they need to find themselves the ability to grow their earnings rather than relying on the excess liquidity of the the, 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 the tools of the marketplace or the tools of the central bank uh, to further expand their, their PEs. Well, and, and what... And we saw this, right? So the reason why, I, like, I think structurally we're in a bear market. There's no question about it. I mean, you, it, you'd have to deny the sun's rising to think we're not in a bear market, right? So when you go back and you look at markets since the beginning of, of January of 18, that's when we started seeing liquidity shift. That's when we really started to see QT start to bite. And so the correction we saw in the first quarter of 18 was nothing more than the destruction of the weakest component of the short vol trade, which was the VIX ETFs, mm -hmm. right? And so we destroyed those instruments overnight. I'm thinking of it this way. I think vol is on a secular trend higher. And because of that, of all the short vol trades out there, all these carry trades that are effectively short vol or levered, and there's going to be you know risk metrics around them that have to be maintained, the fuse is lit. And when the fuse goes by one of these carry trades, it's going to explode and blow up, and you're going to get market events and big de-risking moments. So we saw that in, in early 2018. That's exactly what happened in the fourth quarter of 2018. And so when you look at the fourth quarter, there, is, there was no fundamental structural shift in economic activity that necessitated the largest drawdown in December since 1931 and the subsequent largest two-month rally we've had in the history of the markets, right? right. It, that, this, that means the market structure is broken, not the economy. Right. I mean, and and this, is the, this is the explanation for why we're seeing uh, more frequent swings of the market and yeah. the magnitude of those swings has, has expanded as well. Yeah, and, and this is going to continue. And all we're doing with these market swings is levered players are being forced to delever so you get these liquidity events that draw them down. As soon as that selling pressure is exhausted, you can bring in the programmatic trading and it's going to run it right back up. But that's the market structure that's breaking down. And ultimately, it's going to come back in line with economic fundamentals. And that's why, you know, kind of in the second half of this discussion, we need to talk about those. We need to understand what's going on with price and understand there's a lot of these strategies that are going to be unwound over time. But it also means, so think about if, and this is a real structural issue that has to be dealt with, is, you know, we, because we financial, we, we relied really on monetary policy since 09 to drive the vote until, you know, recently as, as 2016, the market is less a reflection of economic activity as much as it, it's an influence on economic activity. And so that's why I think you see central banks, quite frankly, right now, they're starting to panic because they understand that. So if you look at the correction in December and, or October through December, yeah, fourth quarter 
retail sales were fine, but if you looked at luxury activity, high dollar items, you saw a huge fall off because we had a very large negative wealth effect. So it's gotten almost to where the tail's wagging the dog and the markets is as important to the economy as the economy is to the market. At the same time, unless central banks are going to ramp back up, monetary activity and providing increases levels of, of liquidity, then the private sector has to generate enough liquidity to offset what isn't there by central banks. And if it doesn't, then prices are going to fall, volatility is going to rise. All right. So uh, our next topic here today, uh, I want to look at, at the U.S. deficits. And, yeah. you know, this has certainly been a, a, a huge topic. Um, and, and one inside there that's talked a little bit inside there is, is, is focused on entitlement programs and the funding concerns existing around those. And, you know, this is this is could be a potential major headwind um, to both the economy and, and the investable market. So love to hear your thoughts on, on uh, where we are going from here. Yeah, you know, the, and, and this ties into a lot of the structural issues at play. Um, you know, we, we talk about the liquidity coming out and valuations coming back in with economic fundamentals. Well, what are those economic fundamentals? Um, and when you look at U.S. deficits, um, you know, they're obviously we've shifted to fiscal policy. We're rolling off kind of the, the sugar high in economic activity related to blowing out the U.S. federal deficits. But you, when you look at underlying economic activity and you look at the role that deficits have played, as our deficits have expanded, we're actually drawing dollars in from the rest of the world. And drawing in those dollars then slows down the rest of the world because it puts upward pressure on the dollar and the rest of the world is net short a lot of dollars, as are we. Um, at the same time, there's no magic uh, elixir that's going to fix our deficit situation. And I think that's why kind of over medium term, uh, I, I have a lot more concern about broad risk assets and you'll be able to generate returns, but it's going to be very specific. And it is because everything that we've talked about for the last two decades is now staring us in the face, right? Our entitlements are going to increase uh, at an accelerating rate over time. Uh, they're not going to go away. Uh, pressure, even within defense spending, is really going to have a difficult time uh, being reduced because the, our theaters of war are changing. Not only is it you know land, air, and sea, it's also cyber, and now it's space. So it's going to be difficult to bring those budgets in. And we can already see what's happening just in general with some of the structural changes. From a geopolitical standpoint, everybody's kind of returning back to the home front and focusing on their domestic activities. So just in general, it's going to be incredibly difficult uh, to fix our deficits. Um, and we always like to say we can just kind of wave a magic wand and we'll just cut entitlement spending. Well, even if you could, the time to have done that was two and three decades ago, right? Two and three decades ago, entitlements would have represented three or 4% of GDP. Okay, you can cut them by a third and it's not that big a deal. Today, they're 14% of GDP. And at 14% of GDP, you can't cut that a third. That is a massive hole in an economy. At the same time, you know, the bulk of the issues are really with our healthcare spending. And if, and I think we're going to do this, we're going to go after the margins in healthcare and go after healthcare spending. But those are some of our highest paying jobs and most, you know, technically uh, uh, demanding jobs. And I'm not sure that's what we want to be eliminating from the economy. That's going to have a negative impact on spending and have negative impact on CapEx elsewhere. So, 
there is no easy fix. Um, and then when you switch, and, and we haven't even talked about, you know, outside of U.S. deficits, just the pension obligations that are out there. Well, that was, that was actually going to be my, my, next, my next question to you. So, you know, my, my understanding is, you know, pensions on average need to clip about, you know, 7.5% to fund themselves. You know, we've gone through this period of, of nearly of a decade now where you've had um, excess equity performance um, in excess of both uh, expectations and historical norms. You know, has that has that helped alleviate any of the pressure that's been placed on pensions, or, or what, what is the status of those? I mean, you, is- you know, it, the estimates are all over the map, um, and clearly the returns we've had for the last ten years has has certainly helped, uh, but it, not near enough. So you know, whether the unfunded obligation today is at you know two trillion or eight trillion, it's massive, and again, it's staring us in the face. And the thought that you're just going to eliminate or cut benefits doesn't work either, right? Because that those gaps are going to be closed, and you either close it by cutting somebody's income, which is another person's obligation, or you or you uh, have to tax individuals higher again, which just pulls money out of more productive areas of the economy. So again, no easy solution here. Uh, you know, there the way we've always kind of tried to deal with deficits and debt situations and sovereign debt bubbles, because that's effectively where we are. And I'm not saying that, you know, the, 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 that the U.S. Treasuries are going to go bust by any means, but the way we've dealt with these excesses in the past, you either tried to grow your way out of it. Hey, we've tried that. It's not happening. Uh, you tried to use financial repression. We had zero interest rates for a long time, and that created as many problems as it has uh, created op- opportunities. Or you try to inflate your way out of it, and we have been—we have not been successful at creating inflation, despite the significant amount of, of monetary stimulus we provided around the world. So, again, I don't think there's an easy solution. So, I think we're going to continue to see what we saw in 2018: deficits crowding out um, other sec- areas of the economy, uh, U.S. deficits drawing in dollars from the rest of the world, putting strains on on economic growth outside of the U.S. Um, and there's just not going to be any, any easy solution. Well, let me, let me offer you maybe one solution that's been increasing in, in, in popularity over the, you know, the recent past here. Um, so um, modern monetary theory, right? This is, this yep. is getting a lot of headlines. Um, could you do us, uh, 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 give us some assistance here, and, and one, defining it, and then two, yep. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, yeah. If, if, if this is a way that we could potentially... Um, alleviate our, our, our deficits. Look, and, and we can't say we haven't already done it, right? Um, there's nothing new with modern monetary theory. It just says, look, we're the reserve currency for now, because that's already changing. Um, and so we can just print and spend whatever we want, as long as it's economically efficient. Um, and these are always great theories, but the reality is when you try to put them to work in a political environment, it doesn't play out the way you think it, it would. Um, and while there's truths to we certainly have an economic advantage as the reserve currency, and we've exploited it uh, significantly, our leverage to continue to exploit that is rapidly deteriorate, deteriorating. We can certainly use it um, to a degree, but just I, my own personal view is, and I think we will use it, we, just, we may not call it this, but I will not be surprised to see the U.S. Central Bank at some point in the future, maybe sooner than anybody thinks, go back into a quantitative easing mode in order to support fiscal activity to, to support the economy, which is that effectively is what modern monetary theory is. 
But the issues we're dealing with are so large that you really couldn't sustain uh, a reasonable value of the dollar if you really just relied on monetary uh, MMT. Uh, and even you know the academics that are, are are pushing the concept fully acknowledge that right. This isn't a carte blanche. You just get to print whatever you want and do whatever you want. There has to be some real thought behind it. So our our problems, our obligations are so much larger than can be addressed by MMT. Uh, it's not even worth discussing, quite frankly. Okay, thanks. Good. Um, all right. So next topic here, uh, let's, let's talk about some global trade and specifically global, global trade dynamics. This has been um, arguably one of the you know biggest impactors on, on the market of late, particularly um, looking at uh, what's going on with with U.S. and China. But, you know, really, let's let's talk about what you know, what trade negotiations are, are, are truly about. What, what are what is each side trying to achieve and and how do those dynamics yeah. play out? Yeah. And I think in this, again, it ties into kind of the economic fundamentals. I think there's a belief out there that all we have to do is come to some trade resolution, and as soon as we reduce the tariffs, we're going to have this great hockey stick recovery, a sustainable recovery in economic activity, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, a, these trade negotiations are not as much about trade as they are about just geopolitical confrontation and the fact that we took a, a system to its logical conclusion. And what do I mean by that? Uh, I mean, not only because these tie into both the, the sovereignty of the U.S. dollar as a reserve asset, but also, um, you know, just the outsourcing of uh, our manufacturing base. And so let's go back through a little bit of history. Uh, you know, when you really go back and look at the U.S., uh, when we, our dollar was overvalued uh, going into the early 70s, it was still convertible into gold, and gold was leaving uh, the U.S. and going overseas, and that's when, and we were effectively going to get to be a, uh, at a point where it was going to be difficult to fund our, our consumption and our deficits, and so Nixon closed the gold window. Uh, and that's when they cut the deal with Saudi, and the dollar really took over as the reserve currency for global trade. What that ultimately led to was it allowed us to start to recycle the surpluses within Europe. But it also put Europe at a geopolitical disadvantage, and so that was the beginning that ultimately led to the formation of the euro in the late 90s and the launch of the euro. And once that happened, those surpluses that we were using to fund our deficits started staying within Europe to fund the deficits within Europe and put Europe on more of an economic and geopolitical uh, equivalency with the U.S. Uh, at that point, late 99, what happened? That's when we finally cracked... Uh, the internet bubble, because again, that's a big shift in liquidity and it has an impact on risk assets. But our solution to that was we had to go find another country's savings to borrow so that we could keep the trade going. So what did we do? We allowed China into the WTO. And it, you know, it worked uh, magnificently. They generated plenty of excess savings for us to use. They, they bought our treasuries and we consumed their goods. It was consistent with what they wanted to do economically and from a geopolitical standpoint, start to move forward and, and get to where they could build a middle class. Um, but unfortunately for the U.S. and our middle class, it was a big negative. And what happened? We saw the, the jobs move overseas. We saw wages in the U.S. stagnate and, and start to go down on a real basis at an accelerating rate. We saw 
profit margins for corporations increase as they, you know, as the profit split between wages and margins at an accelerating rate. And ultimately, you got to the point to where it was so bad that we tried to pacify uh, the consumer class in the U.S. just by extending credit. And that's ultimately what kind of led to the credit crisis and the GFC. Now, all that said, you, you can't, we can't do that anymore. And you can't do that anywhere anymore because that's what's led to the rise in populism and a focus to come back and everybody kind of focus on their own constituency and focus on bringing jobs home. Ultimately, we saw global trade peak in 2014 and it's been declining. So these trade negotiations are not about global trade as much as they're about China, you stopped buying our treasuries in 2014. We've stopped buying your goods. We need to set kind of rules of engagement and how we're going to play geopolitically. Um, and we've also discovered, to no surprise, that China's kind of a bad actor. Um, and so, you know, we're not going to come to some great magical trade negotiation and everything's going to be fine. I have no doubt that when tariffs are lifted, if they are, uh, that we'll have some inventory restocking and a short-term spurt in economic activity, but it's not sustainable. The global economy was slowing down well before the trade war started. So removing that is not going to change kind of where we are in the business cycle. So, and, and as I'm thinking about, you know, you're, you're saying bring this back home, and I look at specifically the U.S. trade deficit, you know, how, how much of that is actually run by design, right? How much of that is an effort to get... Yeah. U.S. dollars out into the global economy and continue to solidify, um, well, one, the, the U.S.'s role, but the dominant force of being able to control it, liquidity. It, the there, there's no question. I mean, it's structural, right, right. which is why um, it, it exists. So if if we want, it's it's real simple. We can, we can get rid of our deficit. Um, all we have to do is stop consuming. Uh, it, it's, it's that easy. So if we stop consuming the rest of the world's goods that they produce, we won't have a deficit. It will put downward pressure on, on global GDP, and we can't forget we have debt issues all over the globe. That's supported by economic, economic activity. So if we want to shrink our deficits and shrink our consumption and boost our savings, all for it. It'd be really good for the U.S. It'd be really bad for debt markets, risk assets, mm -hmm. and the rest of the world. And, and what about the idea of, of, of populism and isolationism? You know, this, that seems like it would play right into that hand. Well, and that, we're, that's why we've already seen it. That's why, look, global trade as a percent of GDP is shrinking, and it's going to continue to shrink. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the idea, I think we still have a, a false sense of what to expect out of not just uh, emerging markets, but more specifically, even China. Um, you know, they're not going to be the engine of growth five years from now. Um, so, you know, everybody, and, they, and I think, you know, the... The global leaders, they know that. And so everybody's turning to focus uh, more on their domestic economy. And what that essentially means is goods that were produced afar are going to be produced closer to home. And we're going to see that come back. It also means margins are going to go down. And margins are at all-time highs, and they need to come down. And so there's a lot of mean reverting elements to this, and which, again, is fine for the economy. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with the economy. We're going to have pockets of weakness in autos and housing and elsewhere, and we'll have little mini recessions uh, like we did in industrials in 2015 and 2016. 
Um, but what it really means is we're going to continue to be repricing risk assets over time. So, so what does that mean for the path for China, right? So you say, you know, in five years out, you know, they're probably not going to be the global dominant global producer. Yep. Um, their economy is, is, is shifting to a consumer-based economy. It's um, trying to. It's, yeah. it's, it's in right. It's, in, it's certainly in a transition period. But if if we had, you know look out five or you know even uh, if you venture to say ten, I think we we're, we're probably we're we're going to be a lot closer than than we are today. Yeah. So what happens? You know, do you start seeing that that global production shift to you know, more true emerging market yeah. nations like Mexico or India and things along no, those lines? I mean, or? It, what you're going to see, the challenges with, with China really aren't just tied to global trade. So what the trade war has done is it, it put manufacturers on notice that, hey, there's an increased risk for sourcing goods from China. Now, that can be dealt with a lot of ways. You go find someone in Vietnam, you move a plant to Mexico, and for the large entities that have multiple plants around the world or multiple suppliers around the world, it's not that big a deal. Even for the Chinese themselves, if you're in China, you can set up a plant somewhere else, or you can produce 90% of the good in China and then ship it somewhere for the last 10. There's always a way around tariffs. Um, The critical issue for China, it really just gets back to uh, Xi's increased drive towards uh, a a totalitarian uh, socialism and away from more free markets. And it's coming and it's confronting ultimately a very uh, declining workforce, an aging population. um, And they have real structural issues in their debt. Fully acknowledge that. that I think you've also hit on a key point there, right? Their demographics are turning upside down here. Oh, they're horrendous. Right. Yeah, and then that's been you know arguably the, the yeah arguably the biggest driver of of, yeah. of their success. Well, and and that, and this will tie back in. I, I, at the end, we can talk a little bit about kind of what we think happens in the market, but uh, going forward, because the market's viewing China's policy reaction something similar to what we saw in 2016, and it, it's just completely different. But when you look at China, they are, they're at the point where interest costs are growing as fast as the nominal GDP from the increased borrowing. Um, and at the same time, you know, they're really left with, with, I think, just one or two choices here. Either A, they can start taking the losses and deal with some of the misallocation of capital. Uh, in so doing, it's short-term pain, but longer term, it'd be quite bullish. And then they could re-energize some of the the, the capitalist tendencies that were that have been developed over the last 20 years and they may not be the greatest innovator but they can really develop a middle class and you know the consumption can grow as a percent of GDP and they can make a, a bumpy but yet successful transition um, in order to do that they probably will need to devalue their currency and they're and they're loath to do that and we're loath to let them do that so that is a huge tension that's sitting within these trade negotiations if they don't choose that path, then it's a very different situation. Ultimately, the pressure to devalue will be so great that they will be forced to close off capital flows altogether and become more isolationist uh, within capital markets and then rely on monetary printing and financial repression to deal with their debt issues, and that will drive domestic inflation much higher. Uh, it gets to the point where you know productive economic activity just kind of ceased to exist, and you got something between you know a Venezuela and an Argentina scenario where you know it's all about trying to preserve value rather than create value, uh, which is incredibly destructive. But they're they're clearly headed down those paths. And even x that, say both those scenarios are wrong. If you just look at their demographics, 
and their productivity. Uh, you know, if you think they're growing six today, great. Cut it in half within five years, and they're going to be growing three. And if they're growing three, Europe's close to zero to one, and we can do two, and that's going to be 60% of global GDP. You know, you tell me where this magic growth is going to come from. Right. right. And, I, and I think that's, that's a perfect transition to, you know, if we're talking about global trade, you know, really that last year, well, the last area we're going to focus on today is, is, is Europe and, and talking about bad demographics, a place with horrendous demographics, right? I was, I was reading a stat uh, that said the median age of uh, countries in the Euro they are, is 42 years old, right? So, yeah. So not great. Um, you've got the Brexit standoff, right? You've got yep. uncertainty about the Euro. Uh, you know, what, what is your view on, on Europe at this point and, and, and where does it go from here? It yeah. seems like there's a, you know, a one question mark followed by another. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's easy. I mean, obviously, Europe is a very diverse economy. Uh, and it's easy to look at, you know, statistics and come with a gloomy scenario. And, and that's not, I'm not there with Europe. I think I look at Europe as a, and I say this not, you know, painting a brush across European companies. There's phenomenal European manufacturers. They're going to do incredibly well, but it's because they're not planning on their growth coming from Europe, right? They're multinationals. So this is not a, a stab at, at, you know, specific Euro stocks. But I think structurally, when you look at it, they really haven't dealt with any of their issues, right? We all know what the structural issues with the euro are from a governance standpoint. Well, that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, we certainly understand the issues within the banking system. And, you know, the poster child for that is Deutsche Bank. Uh, well, that's not going to change either anytime soon. So I look at Europe as, as Japan. I think they're clearly on the path of Japan. Um, I would expect... Uh, you know, they can't take rates to negative again. <laughs> they've done that. So they've done everything they can. They're just going to be, uh, you know, plugging leaks and keeping it together. And all of this, and we'll uh, talk about this in, in the conclusion, all of this is going to play out over the next 10 years uh, because it's all age and demographic related. And so we're going to deal with these entitlements. We're going to deal with these structural aging demographics over the next 10 years, and then they're going to be behind us. So I think Europe just muddles along. I really do. I think they just muddle along, and we'll have volatility that comes out um, because of, you know, brief uh, bouts of illiquid environments or bank failures or bail-ins of depositors, but it just kind of muddles along, and it, and it does what it's been doing. I think I think most people might might take a muddle along at this point versus uh, <laughs> yeah. some of the other alternatives that we've seen. Um, all right, so let's talk about the the, the change in global currency, right? And, yeah. And this is something that we've mentioned a couple times in the past, and, and I think it's you know it's it's really substantial as to you know where both the the role of the U.S. dollar lies and and, and that's pathward forward and and really just kind of the it, it represents really the shifting dynamics of of global powers uh, as it comes yeah. to both markets, economy, and trade. So um, with that as, as an intro, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on uh, what's taking place in the global currency market and then yeah. uh, beyond that, really specific to the dollar. Yeah, yeah. there's no there's no question the dollar's role is, has changed. Uh, we've seen that in global trade where, you know, China's forcing its suppliers of commodities and other goods to accept their currency, and they have to do that, right? There's no question that they want the ability to print their own currency to import their own goods, and that's there's no reason they shouldn't have that right. We have that right. Um, and they've been very smart as how they've achieved this by 
launching futures contracts so that arbitrage can develop and they can create liquidity and, and create deeper pools and demand for their currency. And at the same time, they have been able to link it to gold. So if you're not comfortable holding the wand, you can convert it to gold. Uh, and we certainly see those transactions happening. Um, but when you step back, the, the reason why the, the role of the dollar is changing is the world needed, needed a reserve currency um, when the U.S. was kind of the dominant economy and the dominant consumer. And so people would gladly and readily accept the dollar. But as the rest of the world's grown up and the developed world is, is somewhat stagnated from a relative growth standpoint, the emerging and the developing markets are just too large. And we can't produce enough dollars to serve as you know the liquidity for global trade. So that was a problem. And then secondarily, you know, you, you, we took steps, and you can only use them once, is we weaponized the dollar. And we used them via the SWIFT system to enforce what we wanted to occur geopolitically. And instead of, you know, rolling tanks and dropping bombs, we used the dollar. Well, you know, if you're a geopolitical adversary, uh, you've got notice and you've developed uh, elements within uh, the banking system to get around SWIFT. Uh, and you immediately force. Do, do you other, mind just yeah. describing SWIFT for folks yeah. who might be less it, familiar? It, it, SWIFT is just the settlement system for global trade. It just says, look, if you're going to use dollars and access U.S. banks, um, you need to be on the SWIFT system, and we control it. And so we could use it a way to cut people out of global trade and global economic activity. But in a digital world, it, you know, that's essentially a, it's essentially a clearing. Yes, and 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 the U.S. control the clearing. Correct. So in the event that the U.S. wants to. Manipulate. Punish you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it can do so. Exactly. Right. And so, uh, you know, the dollar's share of global trade is declining. Uh, the strength we're seeing in the dollar is, is in, and this isn't going to happen overnight. It's going to be a long transition. Uh, but the strength we see in the dollar is because there is a lot of dollar-denominated debt outside of the U.S., and there's just not a lot of dollars to service it. So, you know, everybody was excited in 2017 because we had global synchronized growth. Uh, well, it's not surprising it occurred in a year when the dollar fell 12.5%. So that provided extra liquidity to service debts and grow. And the minute it tightened up, guess what? The growth, yeah, the growth is gone, which should lead you to an understanding of, well, what's, what is the, the least worst outcome? Because there's no good outcome. Uh, the least worst outcome and really the only policy choice we have from a monetary standpoint is we have to devalue the dollar. We can keep the dollar strong, we can make it stronger, and we will burn risk assets to the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, or we're going to have to devalue the dollar, uh, and quite materially, it's just a question over what period of time, in order to provide kind of some relief for these dollar obligations and allow hopefully some deleveraging, but really more investment and some more some element of more uh, growth globally. All right. So, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about a lot today, right? Um, you know, the Fed's behavior. We've looked into deficits. We've looked into uh, entitlement programs. We've talked about trade dynamics. We've looking at, you know, on a, on a you know, really the, the what would potentially in this point at the stage is, is the three biggest players between the U.S., China, and, and Europe, um, the U.S. dollar and the role that's changing. So, you know, giving all that, if we're going to tie it together here at the end, um, you know, what, what is your, I would guess, you know, maybe, you know, sh short term is always difficult, but maybe short to medium term outlook yeah. on, on, uh, on the market. And sure. So it, it's important to look at where we are. And as we started with, we had excess liquidity that led to excess valuations. 
Um, and when you look at the statistics, they're quite you know, compelling as to the influence of monetary policy. So if we look, ignoring this expansion that's lasted 10 years, let's go back and look at prior expansions. And when you look at those and you look at the price appreciation in the market, 61% of that price appreciation was driven by sales growth and only 23% was driven by valuations and another 16 in margins. When you look at the current expansion, it's quite dramatic in that of the price appreciation, only 19% of that price appreciation represents sales growth or was driven by sales growth, whereas 53% was driven by valuation, twice what we've seen in prior uh, bull markets. And, all, and also, margins are much higher. So we're going to have mean reversion in margins. They're going to come down, and we're going to have to give back some of these valuations. And I think that's what we've been doing. The markets are ch have been chopping for a year, and we're going to continue to chop. As we all know, you can correct valuation in a couple of ways, a big drawdown or marking through time. And so when you look at a very sticky long-term statistic like wealth to GDP, it's been sticky for a couple of hundred years, it averages around 3.8. Currently, we're at 4.9. The peak in 2000, we were at 4.8. The peak in 2007, we were at 4.7. So we're hitting against that ceiling. And again, there's two ways to fix that, that wealth to GDP ratio. Maintain wealth constant and have nominal growth in GDP over time and close that gap. Or knock prices down, knock wealth down in line with where it should be. So I think we're going to continue to see more chop. There's just, there's just no doubt about that. And we're at a bit of a trilemma with the changing role of the dollar and where valuations are and where leverage is and that we can't have a strong dollar and rising interest rates and rising risk assets. Uh, you're going to have to pick one or two at best um, and the other you're going to have to sacrifice. So we're either going to start sacrificing rates, the dollar, or uh, risk assets. And ultimately, we know what people prefer. So that's going to create, it's not going to create an environment that lifts all boats. It's not, it, you're going to see correlations break down. Um, and so a lot of these trend following and algorithmic trading is, I think it's going to be dissipating over time because it's not going to be making uh, money and, and meeting people's expectations. Um, so I think the markets will continue to be challenged. The key is, you know, what do you do about it? Um, and what you do is, you know what you want to own. And when you get those opportunities, you, you step in and, and make those investments. Um, and that's exactly what we did in the fourth quarter. You know, ironically, you know, I think it was December 23rd or, or right before Christmas when the market were, was at its lows. And I went, wow, this is great. The market's finally fairly valued. Uh, this is fantastic. But it was fair valued at that point, not for a recessionary environment. It's fairly valued for this 1% to 2% real GDP plus 1% to 2% inflationary environment we've been in with no credit issues. Well, immediately, what have we done? We've rallied 20%. Right. Look. The markets are expensive right now. There's no question about it. And they're all banking on this back half magic acceleration in economic activity and, and, and profits and earnings. And the reality is we're not going to have the same experience. And because we have, you know, kind of more computers driving short-term trading, they're now starting to lead the leading economic indicators. And they're seeing the stimulus in China. They're looking at 2016 and saying, oh, we got to buy uh, you know, we got massive stimulus coming, but it's not going to work the same way, right? I can be really bullish on India. I can look at what's going on in China and say it's going to get less worse and it's going to get better at some point. 
but we're not going to have the kind of the 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 big inflection and in activity and and earnings that we saw in 16 because not only was the stimulus different it was it was larger and it was broader uh, but we're also coming out of an industrial recession at that point in time and that's just not the case now so so let me let me ask you one last question here today uh, and, and this is one that's that's maybe less about investing or markets but more about your perspective of what's taking place. And, and really, it's it's about optimism and what gives you optimism today. And and I'm going to yeah. preface this question by, you know, historically, I, I think a, a fair argument would be, you know, the U.S. has always had um, positive demographics relative to, to most of the, the rest of the developed world. Uh, we've done a fabulous job with innovation. Uh, we've been the dominant role in the global economy. And the second part of that is, as I look out and with this conversation, as I, as I look out at the other players that we've really been competing against, um, you know, over the last multiple decades, China, mm-hmm. Europe, the, or just let's, let's, we'll call the Eurozone in its entirety, Russia, they, they have really poor demographics relative to what the U.S. looks like today. And as I look out at other areas that could potentially be, be passed, they're passing the baton to areas like Southeast Asia, something like India. Quite frankly, their infrastructure is just not prepared for it. They're just yeah. not ready. So uh, today, you know, what gives you optimism? Is it that the U.S. is the is the best of the bad, or is it because there's actually some things that are taking place here in the United States to get excited about? Yeah, look, I the reason to be optimistic is um, a if you're an active manager, I don't think the indices are going to be a challenge uh, like we've seen the last three years, um, and so just from a business standpoint. Uh, financial services will be better going forward than, than, it, than the challenges we've seen the last two or three years. But from an underlying fundamental economic activity, look, U.S. companies, as you said, do a phenomenal job. Um, and we're finally turning and focusing back on U.S. job growth, U.S. infrastructure, and all of that's going to happen. It's going to be political. It's going to be ugly. But innovation hasn't slowed down here. There's no reason to think we're not going to continue to innovate and dominate uh, not just technology, but healthcare and other technologically driven areas of the marketplace. And we've seen that. I mean, just what Boeing's doing to Airbus, right? I mean, those are the two big behemoths, and we're winning. Yep. End of story. Um, so there's a lot of things to be optimistic about. You know, I think the challenge is, and it's, it's easy to kind of get gloomy, um, and I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think pe- you just have to have a realistic expectation about where we are and what to expect. Um, and so if you go into it going, look, if I have a broadly diversified portfolio, I should expect very low returns for the next 10 years, uh, low single digits, like low single, not even low mid single, I mean, low single digits to negative. Um, and then you got to know that it's going to come with a lot more volatility. And so I think about the next 10 years as the, the, the decade of defaults where we either default on obligations or we default on price stability which means we're very pro-volatility, and that's how you make money. You need volatility. So I'm optimistic that we're going to continue to create opportunities. I'm optimistic that we're going to have the volatility to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, And we're already seeing it today, right? There's myths all across various sectors that are slowly going away. Well, great. This is this has been outstanding. Thank you so much for your thoughts, and, and we always appreciate the insight that you can provide on a, on both on a on a market basis, but also on a, on a macro level as well. So, uh, hugely informative for us. We we greatly look forward to your next visit through the podcast studio, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dan.